<clears throat> Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time this morning. Thank you for the young men you blessed us with in this, in this congregation. I think of the incredible battle that faces them growing up in this sexualized and pornographic culture. I pray for them, Lord. I pray this sermon and the following sermons would minister to them. I thank you for each of them, Lord, in their hearts for Christ and pray for your grace in their lives to overcome the evil one and the temptation they face. My heart truly goes out to them considering the culture that they're forced to grow up in and attempt to remain pure and would pray that whatever uh, effort I could have to help them, Lord, would be accomplished today, but more importantly, your Holy Spirit through the ministry of your word would strengthen and fortify them against the temptation they faced and that you'd grow their hearts for Christ because ultimately it is a passion for him that gives anyone of any age victory over sin. I, I pray you'd use this time fullest and the following Sundays. I don't know that there are many more important things for young men than to be able to overcome the evil one that they face on a daily basis throughout their lives. And I pray for the others here who might not fall into that category of being a young man, that whatever ways in which they could support the young men, whether it's praying for them, uh, I think of older men that would set a good example for them. I think about young ladies who would dress modestly and behave appropriately to make it easy make the struggle easier for their brothers in Christ, and I just pray we'd all be really lifting up to bolster the young men in this congregation as the future leaders of their families and of this church, and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So you guys sitting up there because of the sermon? Yeah. Well, okay, I don't know if it was a joke, but I'll tell you it was meaningful to me to see that. So thank you for sitting up here. It means a lot to me, and I mean that sincerely. In fact, next week, let's rope off these first few pews. For, I'm serious. Leave it, leave it for them so I can direct my attention. If you're a young man and you happen not to be here this Sunday, maybe you join them next Sunday. So the title of this morning's sermon is Overcoming the Evil One By. So I had a few sermons on my heart that I wanted to preach before returning to Luke's gospel, and this is one of them. I'm going to get, begin by telling you about the, a few of the different units that make up the army. I'll briefly break them down, starting at the brigade level. So a brigade has two to three battalions and about 5,000 soldiers. A battalion has four to six companies and about 1,000 soldiers. Company has three to four platoons and about 200 soldiers. Platoon has two to three squads and about 36 soldiers. And then a squad has about 10 soldiers. So you can tell the squads make up the platoons, make up the companies, which make up the battalions, which make up the brigades. And so they're the building blocks of the military. And then it is young men that fill these squads. The young men are the ones who are on the front lines. It's young men who are in the trenches. Who do we not send to war? Who shouldn't we send to war? We shouldn't send women. We shouldn't send children. We don't send old men. We send young men. They're in the trenches. They're on the front lines. And so when there's a general who decides to take that hill or to drop soldiers behind enemy lines or to storm that beach, who's he sending? He's sending young men. Young men exert the greatest effort. They make the greatest sacrifices. The greatest strength is required of young men. Last week, we started looking at 1 John 2, 12 to 14, and these verses divide our progressive sanctification up into three stages, children, fathers, and young men. And then twice, what does it say to young men? Not a sure question. What does it twice say to young men? They've overcome. They've overcome the evil one. Young men are the ones fighting the enemy. When I read this, that's what I think. 
and I've read these verses countless times, and it always strikes me that young men are the ones who are fighting the evil one. They are the ones in the trenches, spiritually speaking. It is the young men in our congregation that are on the front line. They are the ones who must exert the greatest effort. It is the young men who must make the greatest sacrifices, and the greatest strength is required of them. And I say this as someone who doesn't consider himself a young man anymore. And maybe this is why young men are listed last in these verses. They don't progress the way that we would expect. It doesn't go children, young men, fathers. It goes children, fathers, young men. I took speech classes. It was required of me as a business major in college. And one of the things I remember about persuasive speeches is whatever you want to emphasize, whatever is most important, you say that where or when. Last. Maybe that's why it goes children, fathers, and then young men. Maybe John addresses them last because the most is expected of them or the most is expected of you young men. Maybe John wants to give you the most attention in the battle that you're fighting. I want to quickly review what was written to children and fathers, and then we'll look at what's said to young men or what's said to you, brothers. 1 John 2.12, I'm writing to you little children because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. Now skip to the end of verse 13 to see the other thing that's said to children. He says, I write to you, children, because you know the Father. So children know the gospel basics. Do you remember that from last week? These are wonderful truths, but they're also very basic or simple truths that sins are forgiven, their sins are forgiven, God is their father. Next for fathers, in verse 13, he says, I'm writing to you fathers because you know him who's from the beginning. And then again at the end of verse 14, I write to you fathers because you know him who's from the beginning. So you notice the same thing is said to fathers twice. And we understood from last week's sermon that this refers to fathers not just knowing the father but knowing him from the beginning is to say they have this fathers have very deep knowledge and understanding of god so the fact that fathers are the most mature and this is one thing that was particularly striking to me about these verses is the fact that fathers are the most mature and the highest thing that can be said to them is that they know god deeply tells me that there is no greater calling or no greater height of maturity that can be reached it doesn't say when you become a father and you're mostly mature you perform miracles or you begin teaching god's word even the greatest maturity is found in deeply knowing and understanding god there is no higher level than that to attain now to see what's said to young men the second half of verse 13 he says i'm writing to you young men because you have overcome the evil one and then the second half of verse 14 i write to you young men because you are strong the word of god abides in you and you have overcome the evil one so young men they know more than the gospel basics they know more than or you know more than your sins being forgiven you know more than children do but you might not yet have that deep knowledge and understanding that fathers have three things are said to young men or three things are said to you but only one of them is said twice once in verse 13 and again in verse 14 that you have overcome the evil one and so it seems to me if anyone's wondering when they transition from being a child to a young man it's when they have what when have you transitioned from being a child to a young man when you've what develop yeah victory in this area you've moved from being a child to a young man when you've overcome the evil one or had victory over temptation and this could be why some people might spiritually speaking remain what for years or even decades children 
Now, because none of us stop sinning completely, there must be some balance. It doesn't mean you've become a young man when you've stopped sinning completely, because that would mean nobody's ever a young man. So the balance would be that you're no longer dominated by sin. You're not engaging in sin habitually. That pattern has to be broken in your life to move from being a child to a young man. Let's talk about each thing that's said to young men so we can equip them to overcome the evil one. And first it says they're strong, and this brings us to lesson one. Young men overcome the evil one by lesson one being spiritually strong. We're talking about young men, so we almost immediately think of what kind of strength? Physical strength, and that's probably part of it. Because hopefully young men are using the physical strength, the energy that they have in positive and productive ways. It's probably no secret, I'm not the biggest fan of video games, I'm not gonna pry into your homes or your lives too much and say you, you can't play video games or watch television or movies or things along those lines, but I would say they shouldn't be things that occupy too much of your time. You need to be using your strength in positive, not frivolous ways. Spiritual strength is even more in view in these verses, I believe. And I want you to notice this. There's a clear relationship between a young man's spiritual... So look at the verse. I really just want you to see it right here so you don't think it's my opinion. There is a relationship between a young man's spiritual strength and, as it says, the word of God abiding in him. There's a relationship or correlation between a young man's spiritual strength and the word of God abiding in him, him, which is to say that God's word is the source of a young man's spiritual strength. So you young men are not going to be spiritually strong if the word of God is not abiding in you. And notice the statement about young men overcoming the evil one. So that statement follows the statement about the word of God abiding in young men. So in other words, the word of God allows young men to overcome the evil one. Or the, or the word of God allows young men to overcome temptation or sin. Who said as much? In Psalm 119, David said, how can a young man do what? Keep his way pure. So we're talking about young men. Listen to this. Psalm 119.9, how can a young man keep his way pure? And if you pause right there, it doesn't say how can a what keep his way pure. He doesn't say a child. He doesn't say an old man. And Paul does speak to old men or the Bible does address old men. He doesn't say, how can an old woman or a young woman keep their way pure? He says, how can a young man keep his way pure? Now, it's not to say that these other people, older men or children or older women or younger women, don't need God's word, but it seems that when we're talking about purity or keeping pure, God speaks right to young men about the importance of God's word in that endeavor. And listen to how he says that you young men will do this. He says, how can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to God's command. With my whole heart, I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. David says, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. And so it's God's word in your hearts that gives you victory over temptation and sin. We see the importance of God's word for young men to be spiritually strong and pure. And this brings us to lesson two. Young men overcome the evil one by lesson two, being in God's word. Young men overcome the evil one by being in God's word. There are many reasons that 
God's word should abide in young men, or many reasons that young men would pursue God's word so that it abides in them or abides in each of you. Even as 1 John 2.14 says, so that you can move, so each of you can move from being children to young men and then from young men to fathers, so you can be spiritually strong, so you can have victory over temptation and sin, so you can overcome the evil one. But I want to provide one more reason. Whatever God wants each of you to do when you get older, his word will help you with that. So what I find with young men is there are lots of questions. Young men could wonder what. What are some of the questions young men might have? What am I going to do with my life? How should I serve in the church? What are the gifts and talents God's given me? Who should I marry? Should I go to college? How am I going to take care of my family? When will I become a father? Plenty of other questions that young men might ask. And this is what I'd say, brothers. I'd say regardless of what you end up doing, the one thing you need or the one thing that will benefit you in whatever area of life God has called you is God's word. Whatever path God has you on, having his word abide in you will equip you for it. Now, I became a Christian later in life in my early 20s. I got married somewhat later in life and toward my later 20s. And I do have some regrets or plenty of regrets, I'd say, over the years of singleness. But one of the things that I'm very thankful for was I just become a Christian and I threw myself into reading and studying God's Word. And so I used those years of singleness that still benefit me today because I didn't have distractions. I don't like to use the word distraction because then it almost sounds like I'm calling blessings on my life today a distraction like my wife or my children. But what I mean by that is I didn't have the responsibilities that I have now. And it was greatly available to me to read and study. And I'm very thankful that that was one thing that I did. And I would encourage all of you young men to use the time you have to be in God's word before your lives get busier and become more complicated. Now turn to Titus 2. We're not going to turn back to 1 John 2. So Thessalonians, Timothy, Titus, the T's seem to go together. After Paul's epistles or toward the end of his epistles to the churches, he has his pastoral epistles. Turn to Titus 2. I'm going to go through this quickly, and here's the context. So Paul's going to address four groups. So now people besides young men can listen because you're going to be addressed in these verses, even if you're not a young man. He tells each of these four groups, older men, older women, young women, and young men, what they should be and what they should do. Let me say that one more time. In Titus 2, in these verses, Paul's going to tell each of these groups what they should be and what they should do. So you're going to be addressed so you can listen to when Paul speaks to you. Let's start at verse 2 for context. So older men, if you consider yourself an older man, Paul says that we're to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith and love, and in steadfastness. This is a pretty good list. Older men are to be these six different things. So if you wonder as an old man what to be, You've got six things here in verse 2. And now Paul talks to older women. Verse 3. Older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanders or slaves to wine, and they're to teach what is good. And so it seems that women are to be three things. Reverent, not slanders, not addicted to wine, and they're to do one thing. And that one thing is teach. Teach younger women. So if you're an older woman and you wonder what to be or do, it is described for you right there. Now Paul talks to young women, verse 4, and he says that the older women are supposed to train the younger women, the younger women are to love their husbands, their children, 
to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Young men or young women have the longest list. I was going over my sermon with Katie, and she said, you know how us women love our lists, right? So they have the longest list here. They're to do two things, love their husbands and their children, and they're to be four things. They're to be self-controlled, pure homemakers, submissive to their own husbands. Now, because older women are to be this many things or do this many things, because older men are supposed to be six things, because young women are supposed to do two things and be three things, I would expect there to be a lot for young men. (laughs) As I'm building toward this and I'm keeping track of what's said to older men, older women, and young women, when we get to young men, I'm thinking there's going to be a list for them. Because aren't there many things that we would expect from young men or we would want to see young men working on? Let's see if that's the case. Verse 6 says, Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. And that's it, brothers. That's what God says to you. He says to be self-controlled. And this brings us to lesson three. Young men overcome the evil one by lesson three being self-controlled. Self-control comes with maturity. You see the lack of maturity or in the lack of self-control that babies have or children, male children. Look at my son George running around everywhere and all the self-control that he lacks that we're all praying he gets (laughs) as he gets older. But we expect young men to have self-control. It's fitting to say this to each of you. It relates to what is said in 1 John 2. You brothers face immense temptation. And if you're going to overcome the evil one, you must have self-control. Now, I want to make what sounds like a detour, but I'm going to connect it back to young men in just a moment. I understand that the world works against everyone in different ways. I understand that one of our enemies, the world, is an enemy to everyone of any age. The world works against young women by discouraging them from femininity and encouraging feminism or by the other main way that I see the world working against young women is by encouraging them to find their value not in their relationship with the Lord, but I think it becomes a strong temptation for young women to want to have a relationship and to find their value in that relationship with a young man. As a father of five girls, my biggest fear for them, second only to rejecting Christ, is that they would ever be in a relationship with an ungodly young man because I know that nothing is going to pose as great a threat to my daughters as an ungodly young man would. The world works against older women by encouraging them to find their value. They're already married, typically, but to find their value outside of the primary calling that God has on their lives. Now, you know what this calling is, or part of it, because we just read it in Titus 2. Train the young women to love their husbands and children, be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Now, to be candid with you, it seems like you can almost get in an amount of trouble today just for reading that verse. If I I say this, a, a woman should love her husband and children... She should work at home, and she should submit to her husband. How does that go over today? People could buck against that. I I can't believe you just said that, Scott. 
Well, I didn't say it. <laughs> I read it. <laughs> Who said it? Yeah, God said it. So to be honest, if you have a problem with that, you don't have a problem with me. <laughs> you have a problem with God. God's the one who wrote it. You need to take that up with him. That's why I generally show people God's word, and I have them read it aloud, and I say, what did that just say? So that they know God's saying it versus me saying it to them. I didn't comment on it. I didn't exposit it as I normally do with verses. It says, older women teach younger women to love their husbands and children, be self-controlled, pure work at home, be kind, submit to your own husbands, so the word of God may not be reviled or blasphemed. And it'd be hard to argue that there are many things that have brought more disgrace to the word of God than disobedience to these verses. The world, and so my point is the world works against younger women or older women by convincing them that they should move outside these roles or callings that God has on their lives. The world works against older men, in particular fathers and husbands. I think there's a strong attack against men today to not lead or to swing the pendulum to one side or the other. I don't know that in the United States we see, in, if, in the Middle East, what is the greater temptation men give themselves over to passiveness or harshness in harshness in the middle east men treat furniture or animals better than they treat women but in the united states do men typically give themselves over more to passivity or harshness passivity now i'm not saying there's not harsh or abusive men and i'm definitely not minimizing that sin but i am saying that these are the two ways the world works against men to tempt them to be passive provide no leadership to their home or given to the flesh and to be harsh and to be abrasive. And so that is a constant onslaught against older men or fathers. Just as much as women's roles are under attack, so are men's roles. No shortage of people who want to criticize male leadership in the church, in the home, which makes it tempting for men to be passive. No shortage, sadly, of egalitarian churches or churches with pastors and uh, that are female which wouldn't even really be pastors since only men can be pastors so to be clear i believe the world is working against children it's working against young women it's working against older women it's working against older men these are just a few of the ways there's lots of others i can give but with that i want to say this and i mean this sincerely i believe you young men have it the most difficult i sincerely believe you have the toughest fight you know i look at one of my two of my sons and i say that I believe you have the toughest fight. I believe it's tougher than when I was your age. The culture you have to grow up in. I went back and forth about whether to say that for the last two weeks, and I might change my mind in the future, but I feel I've become more convinced of it. I'm not trying to minimize the temptation that anyone else here faces, but they're in the trenches. They're the ones fighting this battle. We need to be praying for them. It's really hard for us to imagine, if you're married, the temptations that they experience on a daily basis, what they're going through. If you're a man and you can take yourself back to when you were in their position and what they have to go through, what they have to resist every day and how the world just bombards them, the sexualized culture that we live in, what's being thrown against them. The temptations that I face today, they are not as strong as when I was a young man. Our world wants to destroy these brothers our world is designed to destroy the young men because when you destroy the young men you destroy the future leaders when you destroy the young men families don't have leaders and churches don't have leaders and when you have weak families you have weak churches when you have weak churches you have a weak gospel you have a weak society our world is set on their ruin it grieves me that 
my sons would have to grow up in this culture that wants nothing more than to destroy them. Go ahead and turn to Proverbs 7. If you don't know this chapter, you need to learn it. If there are any of you young men that don't know this chapter, you need to learn this chapter as soon as possible. And I'll help you with that because I'm going to be preaching on it. (laughs) And I'll say this. If you have a son, if you're a father, you need to go over this chapter with your son. If you're a father and you have a young man in your life, you need to go over this chapter with him if you haven't already. There will be few chapters that will benefit your son or help him overcome the evil one as well as this chapter. And you say, well, when do I read it with my son? And that's a good question. If your son's at an age that he's tempted by women, he needs this chapter. If you can tell that your son is tempted by women, he needs this chapter. You need to sit down and read it with him, verse by verse. Take as many weeks or months as you need. If you're unfamiliar with this chapter, it describes a young man who's drawn away and killed by a woman who's given different names depending on your Bible. These are the women that surround my sons, Ricky and Johnny, and Noah as he gets older. The New King James calls her the immoral woman, the seductress. The NIV calls her the adulterous woman, the wayward woman. These are the women my sons see. The NASB calls her the adulterous and strange woman. The Amplified calls her the immoral woman. The ESV calls her the forbidden woman and adulteress. Brothers, I want to say this as clearly as I can. And I want every young man looking at me, even if they're not sitting in the front, you'll never overcome the evil one if you can't resist this woman. If you can't resist this woman when she calls out to you, you'll never overcome the the evil one. You'll never go to a man. She wants to kill you. Look at verse 27, if you don't understand the seriousness of what we're talking about. Her house is the way to Sheol, going down to the chambers of death. She wants to pull you to hell. That's where she lives, and she wants to bring you there. If you can't learn to resist her, you will never have victory in the Christian life. This brings us to lesson five. Young men overcome the evil one by lesson four, resisting the harlot. I preached this, I preached on this chapter, some of you might remember it, 10 years ago. And what's different? I didn't have Rick and Johnny at this age. I was going to preach on this at an upcoming men's breakfast. And you, if you happen to hear, be here 10 years ago, I don't think I could preach the same sermon if my life depended on it, because as I look out, you learn more over years, it's been 10 years, and I look over my notes and you change things. You don't have to worry about hearing the same thing. Although, to be honest with you, I didn't remember much of what I preached and I learned from my old stuff. I benefited from it. So even if it was the same sermon, I believe because it's God's word, it could be profitable. But with that said, I plan to preach Proverbs 7 at an upcoming men's breakfast. And I sent a text message to the elders. And I, okay, we have two threads, just to tell you this. We have two threads. We have a thread of text among the elders and we have a thread of text among the elders and their wives. I thought I sent a text to the elders. And I said, brothers, my plan is to preach this during the men's breakfast. Is that what I should do? Well, suddenly, the wives started texting back too, so I realized I sent it on the wrong thread. And guess what the wives were saying, along with their husbands? Preach this during the worship service. Preach this to our sons. Give them this truth. So that's what we'll be doing. The mothers want this for their sons as well as the fathers do. 
And so I just want to ask you, be praying for our young men over the weeks that we go through this chapter. They're the leaders of the future families, the leaders of this church in the future. Now with that, look at a young man that we can learn much from. Verse 6 says, At the window of my house, I have looked out through my lattice. I have seen among the simple. I have perceived among the youths a young man. We're talking about young men, and here's one that is lacking sense. He is simple, as the verse says. Lacking sense means he's foolish, he lacks wisdom. He shows young men what not to do. He's the opposite of the young man in 1 John 2 who has overcome the evil one. Now, Proverbs, as you know, it's filled with verses about wisdom and foolishness. The book of Proverbs is a contrast between wisdom and foolishness. And I can tell you this, this young man disobeys so many verses about wisdom, or he so exemplifies foolishness that we wouldn't have time to look at all of the parallel verses in Proverbs, or we wouldn't even get through this chapter. I'll draw your attention to some of the Proverbs, but just keep in mind that this man is the picture of foolishness. So if you brothers don't want to be foolish, do the opposite of him. Look how his foolishness begins in verse 8. It says, He's passing along the street near her corner. He's taking the road to her house. Her corner. She's a harlot. What do, what do harlots have? What do prostitutes have? They have an area that belongs to them, right? They have a corner that they work. And that's what she's doing. She has a house. The house is where she lures her victims. This is where she kills her, her prey, the young men. It says, passing along, taking the road. This is how the temptation begins. This is James 1.14. You don't have to turn there, but you might write it down or draw, circle the verse, draw a little line out to it. You're looking at an illustration of James 1.14. Here's James 1.14. Each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. This young man is lured away toward her house. Soon he's going to be enticed by her. And I want to share something fascinating with you. The phrase, when he's lured, that's four words in English. It's one word in Greek. It's the word exelko. It's a metaphor, and I'm, I'm quoting here. So in James 14, when it says, when he's lured, that's exelko. And it's a metaphor, and I quote, for the seduction of a harlot. So when James 1.14 discusses being lured away, the imagery is of a harlot, and we get to see that illustrated here in Proverbs 7. So James wants to describe how we're tempted, and he uses this chapter as an illustration. Let me say it like this. Proverbs 7 illustrates what James 1.14 is for us. Briefly turn to the left to Proverbs 4.14. This is what you need to do, brothers. You should highlight this verse, circle it, underline it, put stars by it. Proverbs 4.14. Do not enter the path of the wicked. Do not walk in the way of the evil. This young man did the opposite of that. He, he enters the path of the wicked. He walks in the way of the evil when he took the road to her house and then verse 15 it says avoid it do not go on it turn away from it and pass on he did not avoid it he went on it he didn't turn away from it he didn't pass on by it look one chapter to the right at proverbs 5 8 another great verse to keep in mind for young men proverbs 5 8 keep your way far from her 
Do not go near the door of her house. So again, we see the young man doing the opposite of what Proverbs or wisdom says. He didn't keep away from her. He did go near her house. Bill Shannon said, it is easier to avoid temptation than to resist it. Let me say one more time. It is easier to avoid temptation than to resist it. This young man could have avoided temptation. He had no business going toward her house, but isn't this often how temptation begins of any age? How does that adulterous relationship begin? When that man walks past that woman's cubicle or begins the conversations when he sees that she's in the break room, it's almost always going someplace. How does the drunkenness begin? It's going to the bar that we shouldn't go to. Now, here's what I want to say. For this young man, I meant going down the wrong street. For you, brothers, it's going to the wrong place on the internet. You've got to avoid those places on the internet. You have it much easier potential to sin than this young man did. He had to go and look for it. I didn't bring my phone up here. You just need to pull your phone out. And that's it. And that's why my heart is grieved for you. Because it is that easy to find this harlot. It takes no more than just turning your phone on. And you've got to avoid those places on the internet. Don't go down those streets. Don't go to those corners. You brothers must be disciplined to stop the temptation before it begins by deciding not to go to the wrong sites. And if you happen to stumble on the wrong site, rip your eyes away before you see something that you shouldn't. If you fail to do so, you're this young man. If you fail to do so, you are choosing to go toward her house. You're heading toward her corner. You're on your way to destruction or hell. You're, this site that you're tempted to view, by looking at it, you're saying, I want to be like this foolish young man and head toward hell. I'm going toward her house where she can kill me, where she can destroy me, spiritually speaking. I am failing. I'm choosing to fail because I want to pursue her. Consider this verse that both describes the problem and reveals the solution, Romans 13, 14. Listen to this. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Now, you can tell that this verse has much application for the young man. It says, make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. He did the opposite of this. He made provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. But here's the question. Why does the beginning of the verse, and this has application for all of us, because we all struggle with the flesh, we all desire, it might look differently than it does for young men, but we all desire to satisfy its desires or are tempted to do so. So why does the beginning of the verse say to put on the Lord Jesus Christ? What does putting on the Lord Jesus Christ at the beginning of the verse have to do with making no provision for the flesh at the end of the verse? They seem unrelated. But putting on the Lord Jesus Christ is the solution to the second part of the verse of making no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. And the reason that I emphasize this is so often the counsel against pornography sounds or could be boiled down to two words, try harder. Try harder, you're just not trying hard enough. Now, I'm not minimizing the need for effort. I'm not saying that it's not an issue of trying hard to resist the temptation. I mean, Titus 2.6 just talked about self-control. So we see the need to try hard. But here's the problem. I don't know how many men I've talked to who've struggled with pornography. 
I've never met one that wasn't trying hard to resist that temptation. I've never met a man who looked at pornography who wasn't filled with shame and regret. I mean, I have talked to men who have looked at pornography who have sobbed in front of me because of how bad they feel looking at it. I've said to numerous men, and this is a genuine question, I see how bad you feel right now about what you've looked at. What could possibly be worth this feeling? How could something be enjoyable enough to feel as bad as you do right at this moment? Well, the solution is they're trying hard, but that's not, that's the answer, but that's not the full solution for victory. There must be a putting on of the Lord Jesus Christ. Effort and self-control are needed, but the problem with counseling people to try harder, besides the fact that they already feel like they're trying hard, is it puts all the emphasis where? On the person, on the individual. It's a very isolated feeling. Where's the help for me? What am I supposed to do? You're telling me it's all about me. And they need to be told to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, they need to have their focus lifted from themselves to Christ. They need to stop looking at themselves and look to Jesus. They need to think about what he's done for us or for them. This is what it means to rely on the gospel versus to rely on human effort. And it's not totally exclusive. There's human effort, but to rely on the gospel is to be focused on what Christ has done and to have that victory imputed to us. Now, last week's sermon was about fathers. We haven't talked about fathers this morning, but this is one moment I want to ask all the fathers to pay attention, or all the fathers who have a son. Brothers, and I'm talking to the fathers, we must be helping the young men in our lives, especially if they are our sons. I meet with numerous young men in the church, and I try to ask them at some point, typically after just finding out how their lives are going, about their purity. So that's not the first question I ask, right? <laughs> I usually sit down and ask them how their marriage or their family or how, how life's going or their work. But pretty early, I want to ask them about their purity. When I have one-on-one time with my daughters, the first question that I typically ask my daughters is, what have you been reading in the Word? That's typically the second question that I ask my sons. What's the first question I ask my sons? You can ask Ricky and Johnny, and they'll tell you this. What does your purity look like? How has your purity been? Tell me about your thought life. My daughters, tell me about the word. What are you getting from the sermons that mom's having you listen to? Or what did you get from the sermon on Sunday? What have you been reading daily that you want to share with me? But my sons, when I'm talking to Ricky or Johnny, how is your purity? They expect that question. And brothers, and by brothers I mean fathers, you should be asking your sons the same. And then I would say, sons or young men, if you have a father or you have an older man who asks you this question, you need to thank him because it's not a super comfortable question for older men to ask. Now, if you're listening to this and you're a young man, and I mean this sincerely, and you're saying, I wish I had a father or an older man that asked me that. Well, I know where there's four men you could seek out who'll ask you that. You can seek out me or one of the other three elders and we would be privileged to help you with accountability and ask you that question. So if you don't have a believing father, 
you say, well, I don't have the family for that. You don't have the biological family, but you have the spiritual family for it. That's why God gives you a family. So you have brothers and sisters, fathers and mothers in Christ. And if you don't have that in a spiritual father, biologically, you can have that in the church through one of the elders or one of the other godly men you know that I'm sure will be more than happy to meet with you and give you that accountability. Turn to Proverbs 7-9 to see when the young man does all this. Proverbs 7-9. He does this in the twilight. We'll talk more about this verse next week, but I just want you to notice this morning he does this in the twilight and the evening. At the time of night and darkness, that's when he's foolish. It almost sounds like a scary story, doesn't it? And this is like how a horror movie begins or, or horror story, and in a sense it is because this young man's going to be killed. Now, why did the young man want to do all this at night? He thought nobody would see him. Somebody was watching, though. Look at verse 6. For at the window of my house, I have looked out through my lattice, and I have seen among the simple. I have perceived among the youths a man lacking in sense. He went out at twilight, went out when it was dark, but no matter how hard he tried, he could not hide what he was doing. Now, we know Solomon wrote most of Proverbs, but I don't want you to make this mistake. You say, oh, Solomon wrote Proverbs, so oh, this must be Solomon speaking in the first person in verse 6. This is not Solomon speaking. It is not a concern that Solomon would see what a young man is doing. God is watching. Proverbs 15.3, the eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. So, young men, give me your attention. You need to keep this in mind. If you try to meet with the harlot, and you can try to do so at night in the darkness, you might be able to hide that from your friends at church. You might be able to hide that from your siblings. You might be able to hide that from your parents. But God is watching. And he looks down and he sees among the simple a young man lacking sense. He sees a foolish young man who is on his way to death. I want to conclude with this. I just read Proverbs 15:3, the eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. So this verse says that God sees everything, evil and good. I focused on the evil. I want to focus on the good for everyone. So everyone pay attention to this. Okay, raise your hand if you're a father. Raise your hand if you're a father. Keep your hand up for a moment. I want you to know God sees you fathers who are seeking out your sons, discipling them and encouraging them in their purity. God sees you doing that. You can put your hands down. Any mothers here? Raise your hands, mothers. I just want you to know, God sees you praying fervently for your sons. God sees you mothers praying fervently for your sons. Young ladies in here want to raise their hands? Young ladies, do we have any? God sees you dressing and acting modestly to make their battle easier. God appreciates the young ladies who are dressing and acting modestly to make the purity of their brothers in Christ easier. God, God sees you protecting them, and he appreciates it. And God sees you, young men, fighting this fight. He sees you in the trenches. He sees you on the front lines. 
He sees you saying no to the lust of the flesh. He sees you saying yes to the Spirit of God. He sees you overcoming the evil one as you put on Jesus Christ. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, seeing everything, and he wants to help you live for his glory. If you have any questions or I can pray for you in any way, I'll be up front after service, and I would consider it a privilege to speak with you. Father, I thank you for this time. I thank you for the young men you've blessed us with in our church family, and I pray that they would feel surrounded by people who love them. I pray that whether they come from Christian families or not, that they recognize they have fathers and mothers, brothers and sisters who love them and are for them. They're holding them up in prayer, and hopefully by our own behavior and actions, especially any of the young women would hopefully be able to say that, Lord. So I pray for these young men, each of them. I pray selfishly for my sons, but I pray also for the other young men that you give them purity, that you give them victory, help them to overcome the evil one, be with them in this incredibly difficult struggle that they face. I think about what they have to see just walking down the street. And I pray, Lord, for them in this battle that they fight, that you would fill them with your Holy Spirit and that by your grace you would give them a self-control and an ability to resist the harlot, harlots that surround them on a daily basis. Lord, it is a heartbreaking scenario for them, but we're so thankful for the gospel of Jesus Christ and the power that it gives us over all temptation we face. Lord, and so strengthen these men, grow them to be great, wonderful fathers, godly ones who lead churches and lead their families. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.